the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask a Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied tonight by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. And by one of the attorneys in our office, Joanna David. Hello, everyone. Okay, now those of you who don't know the show, the show is in two parts. The first part, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, that's avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, the second part of the show, we do interviews. And we talk about politics, history, religion, other su- almost any subject you can think of, sometimes nostalgia. You know, it's Black History Month, so this month we're, we're, we're having African-American historians, and we're very pleased to have Dr. Alveda King, niece of Martin Luther King. And I know, Joanna, you met her once when she came to New York. Yes, I did. I did. Um, it was a very pleasant experience for me. Um, she was so warm and, and heartfelt, so I was happy to meet her. Yeah, she's a very dynamic speaker, very good speaker, and we'll be talking to her about, you know, Black History Month. But meanwhile, let's get back to, uh, you know, estate planning and elder law. And and Joanna, give us a little bit about your background. How long have you been at Connors & Sullivan? Okay, well, I have been at Connors & Sullivan for five years now. Um, Prior to that, I was a litigator, and um, I am originally from Brooklyn. I will always be a Brooklynite, um, but... Uh, now I am on Long Island with my husband and children. Why did you move to Long Island? You guys in Brooklyn are uh, getting a little bit too too uh, too rich for my blood. Oh come on! I think that's a very good question. You moved <laughs> to Long Island. You abandoned Brooklyn. I know. I know. What part of Brooklyn is your family from? Um, my family is from the uh, Flatbush area, Midwood and Flatbush area. Since you live in Long Island, you're more times than not in the Queens offices. Right. Bayside and Middle Village. You want to tell them a little bit about those offices, where they are? Sure. Um, the Middle Village office is on Metropolitan Avenue, um, and the Bayside office is on Northern Boulevard, right off of Francis Lewis. Um, both offices are, are very accessible, um, right off of the parkway, and um, they've been get, we've been getting a lot of traction there, so they get very busy. So I would encourage everyone to make your appointments as early as possible. Let's go through some of the questions that you have to answer on a fairly regular basis. 
Well, one question that I get um, fairly often is whether someone who lives out of state can be an executor. A lot of times clients ask me, well, I don't really have family members here in New York. I do have some family members in other states. Um, is it okay for them to be my executor? And of course, the, qu- the answer is yes. Yeah. But again, they're always, you know, like that's the thing about estate planning. It's not always as easy as you think, because let's say for the sake of argument, they live in California, but they're not U.S. citizens. Right, right, right. That's true. That's true. And of course, when you're dealing with people from Brooklyn and Queens or whatever, we have a lot of families that are first generation, you know, that came from another country and and trying to make their way here. And a lot of times the brother or sister is not a U.S. citizen. Correct. Correct. And and we know your executor must be a U.S. citizen. You know, one of the things, too, assuming your, your, your relative is a U.S. citizen, being in California is not as difficult a task as it may seem. Notaries are a little bit more difficult there. But there's emails, there's faxes. Right. You know, brokers can do business with, you know, over emails or whatever. It's it's not like we're in the, the 19th century and the Pony Express has to go out there. <laughs> sure, sure. Electronic signatures. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's, you know, a lot of the clients out there feel, well, my sister can't do anything. She's in California. My sister can't do anything. Sometimes I hear my sister can't do anything because she, she's in New Jersey. My daughter is in, uh, you know, Massachusetts or something like that, and she can't do anything. And that's that's really not, you know, that's really not true. Sure. As, as a matter of fact, we do have um, clients who, well, you know, their loved one was a client of Connors and Sullivan. And so we have um, clients, you know, in other states, in California, who have retained us, you know, to uh, probate their loved one's estate here in New York. Yeah. And that's a lot of times, too, if you have somebody as executive, you have somebody as, as power of attorney, a family member, they can delegate some of their responsibilities and retain a law firm to, to do that job for them in, in New York. And a lot of people, again, they don't realize it. So geography is not as much of a problem as you might think. The only times I remember geography being a problem, if and I'm sure it's better now when you're dealing with somebody in Cuba, that used to be a serious problem. And it, it's very hard to get money into Iran. You know, if somebody's inheriting money in Iran, it's hard. It can be done when you need to use a Canadian bank and go through different, you know, machinations or whatever. But those those are the only two places where, uh, you know, it's tough because ordinarily if you're overseas, you have to go into the American consulate to transact business. Right. To have your, exactly. And there's no American consulate in, in Iran. So that could be a problem. Now, you mentioned another question, which, you know, a, a few months ago, I think we answered, but I think it's always a question that's worth repeating. Can you go through that? Sure. Um, another question that I get asked repeatedly is, um, why you know, do I need a will if I have a trust? A lot of clients want to know um, if they're doing a trust and they're putting all their assets in that trust, what is the purpose of having a will? A lot of times, uh, you know, I mentioned a story that it's a true story that I use in a lot of our seminars. And I talk about a woman on SSI who didn't have any assets. She had a $2,000 bank account that was joint with a friend. And she lived in what we used to call subsidized housing, what we used to call a welfare hotel. So she didn't even own the furniture in the hotel room. And she didn't think she needed a will. But there was a fire in that hotel room. She died in the fire. She had a sister she hadn't seen in years, and the sister was physically was, – was ashamed to be with the woman on SSI because the woman on SSI was physically disfigured, and her sister was ashamed to be with her. So anyway, there was a lawsuit. The public administrator of Kings County handled the lawsuit. The friend paid for the funeral. The sister didn't go to the funeral. So years later, who gets the money from the lawsuit? The, the sister. sister. Because there was sure. no will. A will covers assets that are in your name alone, and no matter how you plan things, there always might be something that is not in your trust. It may be as simple as a car. It may be, if you own an apartment, it may be as simple as the furniture in your apartment. Um, it may be a check in the mail. It may be your last income tax refund. You know, I, I would say it's almost impossible to get every single asset into a trust. 
because again, nobody's going to put a car into trust. Now, yes, we've had people that have antique cars. And they, right. they put those antique right. cars in a trust. But for the most part, you're not going to put your regular car that you drive around into a trust because your insurance is going to go up. Now, what are some when you talk to people, what are some of the concerns that you have when, you, let's say, you meet people in the Middle Village office or the Bayside office? Concerns that I have? They have. Oh, that, that they, they have. up to you. Um, so a lot of concerns um, that people have is how to avoid probate, how to make sure that their um, family members um, and their loved ones can inherit their assets without having to go through the, the court process or the bureaucracy of the court process. Um that's one thing, but something that I also um, get asked a lot is, hey, how do I protect my assets? I've worked so hard, um, you know, for these assets and I would not, um, you know, like to lose these assets to medical bills or nursing home bills. And I'd like to make sure that I can pass this on, you know, to my children. What's the average cost of a nursing home right now in Brooklyn and Queens? Fourteen to $15,000 per month. Every single month. Absolutely. So if you're out there and you want to pass your house on to your kids, strongly suggest you think about doing some planning. Because right now in New York, to be absolutely safe, we have a five-year look-back period. And if you want to protect, let's say, your house, we put your assets you know, in a trust, let's say, in February. March is month number one on the five-year clock. And you're always better off getting the clock started. And five years goes a lot quicker than you think. Absolutely. And a lot of people think that you can't have a home if you need Medicaid or you need a nursing home that, you know, it's automatic that you will lose your home. And we know that that's not true. Yeah. And a lot of times people don't realize, I'm, I'm not saying it's easy, but people don't realize that it's relatively not difficult to qualify for home care Medicaid in New York. Can you explain that? Sure. Absolutely. Um, to qualify for home care Medicaid in New York, um, as long as your assets are in a trust, a living trust um, for one month prior to um, you qualifying for Medicaid, you can qualify. Um, that was a little bit inartfully worded. So uh, as long as your assets over 14000 are in a trust, um, you can qualify for home care Medicaid as little as one month after doing the trust. Your um, income, now there are certain income levels, but we can also shelter that income um, by using something called a pooled income trust. Um, but I think we'll get into that a little bit later. All right. Maybe that'll be a discussion for next week. And 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 one other thing. Do you speak any languages besides English? Uh, yes. I um, am from Haitian descent. So I speak French fluently. I speak Creole fluently. Um, and I'm also conversational in Spanish. I do not um, claim to be fluent in Spanish, but I'm conversational. But you seem to get the job done. <laughs> yes, I would say so. <laughs> now, each week, Kevin McCullough asks one of answers, or I should say we answer the question that Kevin McCullough gets posted to his radio show. And so, Kevin, what's the question of the week? Hi, Kevin McCullough. One of the promises we make and keep to you each week is that Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan Law Firm will come and answer one of your questions. Uh, you know him from Ask the Lawyer. It's uh, Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570 The Mission and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970 The Answer. Uh, but Mike, this week's question comes from Carl, and he says, My daughter took my original will out of my vault. How dare she? And I was told a copy is not sufficient. So why do I need an original? Well, this is one of the common misconceptions that people have. If they have a copy of a will, it is sufficient. If you do not have an original will, it is presumed under the law that you revoke that will, you tore it up. 
So to over- overcome that presumption is not very easy. Of course, in this case, Carl can do a new will, but let's figure out where he keeps it because he should keep it in a safe place where somebody's not just going to grab it and maybe destroy it. But if you have no original when you're gone, under the law, it's presumed that you do not have a will and then the state writes a will for you. And sometimes that can be very advantageous for some people. Let's say this daughter received part of her inheritance ahead of time. You know, she received some money to buy a house and he's making that up in his will. Well, she tears up the will and all of a sudden it becomes equal shares with her siblings. Oh, wow. Well, let me ask you the reverse question. So if she has the original and then he comes and he does another original, uh, what if both originals end up in a, in a court dispute? Well, it's the later original. So it's done by date. That's a, that's a silly question. I should have known the yeah. answer to that. Um, the later d- dated original, then you're presumed to have to provoke the uh, the prior will. Of course, if they say something different, yes, that could lead to a court battle, but what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, that's why they hire Connors and Sullivan, to help them make sure that they don't have those kinds of issues. So, friends, if, if you've got questions about your will or your estate or wanting to make sure that you have the best tax advantages, uh, not only for you, but for your um, uh, inheritees as well, uh, call Connors and Sullivan today. They are the number one law firm in New York uh, tri-state area for getting this stuff done. 718-238-6500, recognized by their peers as one of the finest in the business. 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. And again, don't miss Mike's show. Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570, The Mission. Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again to Kevin McCullough. You can hear Kevin McCullough Monday through Friday on 970, The Answer. Of course, he does a show with John Katzmatidis on Wednesdays. And you can hear Monday through Friday on WMCA, The Mission, 570, The Mission. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. With Ask the Lawyer, with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth, and Joanna Davis. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. 
time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. With me right now is an old friend of the show, Dr. Alveda King. Dr. King, I would like to talk to you about the events in Virginia right now. Number one, the abortion law that's being proposed. Well, you know, I imagine that you're hearing an outcry from what we call the pro-life community. I'm a part of that. But the people of conscience who also have not only spiritual perspectives, but also civil rights perspectives, because we really do agree that a woman has a right to choose what she does with her body, but the baby's not her body. So where's the lawyer for the baby? And so when you have a governor uh, like Governor Northam, who has been a pediatrician, who knows that that is a baby in the womb, a human being in the womb. And so he can't pretend he doesn't know that. And so we are very disturbed, not just about what he did 35 years ago, whether or not he had the picture on his page or whether he was in the page and it had the Ku Klux Klan and all of that. We could figure, actually forgive that. But all these years later, we know that Planned Parenthood is still doing eugenics. And a governor like the governor of New York or Virginia or these other states who are following suit and the Congressional Black Caucus, who should really be disturbed about African-American genocide, they're all going along with it. And that's what's so disturbing. We go back to to Planned Parenthood and and the beginnings of Planned Parenthood. And it was evil. It was racist. And and why, like you're saying, why does the Black Caucus buy into it? Well, we had the situation with my uncle. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as well, Margaret Sanger said, colored people are like weeds. They need to be exterminated. We don't want the word to get out. So they came up with a slick marketing plan. Let's come up with grants and scholarships and opportunities for people, not just black. There are others as well. But let's just say we want to help the community and we want to help women's rights. And so in doing that, the effort was to minimize the black population in America at the top of the list to deal with minorities. And then there were some other populations, some issues with women's rights as well. So the baby was totally ignored and forgotten. And they began to pretend that they did not know that the child in the womb is a human byproduct, a human being. So that's how all of that started. And Margaret Sanger did do a lecture in front of the Ku Klux Klan. I don't know if it's the women of the Klan or what, but she actually consulted with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, it has been said that she also dated a lieutenant of Adolf Hitler. So all of that was happening. So she sold those seeds all of those years ago, and it's time now. And that's why I said to Governor Northam, I hope you heard about it. I said, no, I'm not asking you to resign. I'm saying you stay there and reverse some of those actions that you've done that have resulted in the death of all these babies. Why don't you lead the way if you're really sorry and make sure that we're not killing any more babies by abortion? Let me ask you this. We started to touch about, but why does the Black Caucus buy into Planned Parenthood? Well, actually, maybe because campaigns are often supported by special interest groups. And if you would kind of look back into that history, because members of the Congressional Black Caucus historically have been voting for efforts that cover uh, abortion, you know, tax dollars 
go into Planned Parenthood, for example, one of the largest abortion providers in America, if not the largest. And so with that nefarious plan of Margaret Sanger, let's cultivate the people, tell them it's good for them, and put our money where our mouth is. But it's not really even Planned Parenthood's money. They're getting over a million and a half dollars a day from our own tax dollars right now. Like I said, it's it's despicable. A hundred years later, she has more of an influence on our society than almost any anybody else from that time. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's the Trojan horse, but it's not a gift. It's killing babies, and it has to stop. And that's why you hear my voice, but not only my voice. Many members of the pro-life community, the African-American pro-life community, and you notice I say community because there's only one race, the human race. So we're not different races. We're one blood Acts 17:26, but we've got to learn to live together and work together and resolve our differences without all of this, this fighting. So that's why you actually heard me say to the governor, no, don't leave. Reverse some of these evil actions. Do you think sometimes, well, we know it is, but the press is distorting everything. Were they making an important issue out of, out of the stupid pictures as opposed to the, the killing of human beings infanticide? When we have something like the actions that have occurred around the issue in Virginia, the governor with the black face and the Ku Klux Klan picture in his yearbook that he says he didn't see until now. He he doesn't think that was him in that picture. He's almost sure of that. Uh, he did do blackface actually one time trying to pretend he was Michael Jackson. I mean, that story went on and on. I'm like, this is unbelievable. But to me, that was actually a distraction. That was 35 years ago. And as terrible as that was, he could have grown out of it or had a change of heart. But 35 years later, he's still in league with the same kind of actions that were trying to exterminate blacks through genocide back then. Back then, they were burning crosses in yards and lynching black people and things like that. But now, 35 years later, still African-Americans are being exterminated through the genocide of abortion. And right there in Virginia, the governor's doing it. So if the press or media intentionally did that, I don't know. It's hard to, you can't, well, I'll let the public decide on that question. But it was a distraction because what really needs to happen now is people need to go back and remember that Governor Northam said, oh, it's just making infanticide legal. Because in other words, if the baby's born, like in New York, if that baby, when that baby's born, and if the intent was to abort the baby, then they say you need to let the baby die because the intention was to kill the baby. And so and uh, in New York, abortion is kind of upside down in the black community. More babies in New York, black babies are aborted than born. So all of this is really occurring across the country. I ask people not to be distracted by the emotional upheaval that you feel when I saw that picture myself, the first time I saw it, I said, oh, my God, in 1963, my daddy, Reverend A.D. King, and my mom, uh, daddy was a pastor in Birmingham. My home was bombed by the Ku Klux Klan. So, of course, I had an emotional response. But still, right then I said, 35 years ago, forgiveness can happen. But if you're doing the same thing 35 years later, targeting African-American babies, there's a problem. It's called genocide. So that's what I was just asking people to remember. What's your recommendation? What should people do? I mean, outside of vote, and I think people should take a look at who's voting for abortion and who's not, especially here in New York. We can start there and just make, you know, say, I'm not going to I'm not going to vote for this anymore. And so you can start there, educate yourself, educate your community and 
insists that your elected officials sustain life, enhance life, not vote and move to spend money to kill babies in the womb. This, those are human beings. They used to argue we don't know if it's a person or not. Well, right now, we do know that's a human being. We do know that. I think I read in an article that some people are saying, I think it's a good idea. It's a pre-born baby. It's, 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 a not, a it's not it's a fetus. It's not a fetus. It's a baby. It's a human being. A baby? It's a baby human being, but it's a human being. Listen, Dr. King, thank you for voicing your opinion. We really appreciate it, and good luck to you. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash F. Melia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church... I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With us right now is Tom Clavin. About a year or so ago, we talked about Dodge City, Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp, and we we had one discussion once about the DiMaggio's in baseball. But we're going back to the Old West right now, Wild Bill Hickok. Tom, you have a book about Wild Bill. What's it called? It is called Wild Bill, and it's the true story of the American Frontier's first gunfighter. Okay, so what drew you to, to, to Wild Bill Hickok? You know, it, obviously we all know his name, but do we know him? Well, that's that's a, the perfect question for what drew me to the book, because, you know, first of all, there was a, you could draw a direct line from my book, Dodge City, to here, because several people, when I would give talks about the book, Dodge City, which is mostly about Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson, I, I mentioned Wild Bill a couple of times as being the 
first prototype, really, of the frontier lawman. And so people said, well, what do you mean by that? And, and I, you know, there's just this presumption that because everybody knows the name Wild Bill Hickok, that there's all kinds of books and stuff out there about, about him. But so I started to look into it and I said, you know what, maybe it's, this isn't exactly a prequel to Dodge City, but it does, much of it takes place about 10 years earlier, like more in the 1860s into the early 1870s. And, uh, and I found out that there really isn't a lot out there, certainly in the last 40 years, about Wild Bill Hickok. Uh, he's been portrayed in movies, you know, the Jeff Bridges did a book movie called Wild Bill about 20 years ago. But uh, a lot of times when he's portrayed, he just keeps repeating the same exaggerations, the, the same embellishments, the same fictions. He had a fascinating life. And it's the, the, the facts, another, again, sometimes the facts can be as interesting or more interesting than the same title legends that have been tossed around for decades. And that's certainly true about Wild Bill. He lived, he, he packed about five lifetimes into one life, and he didn't even live to be 40. Do you start with the Civil War? I start before the Civil War, before and there's, Civil. A, uh, there's actually a connection to it, because even, the Hickok family were all New Englanders, and it was Wild Bill's father who came to Illinois with his family and then started farming the family. But he was very much, he had this New England anti, uh, you know, anti-slavery feeling. He was very much an abolitionist. And he used his farm as a station on the Underground Railroad. So there's so young Jim Hickok, his real name was James Butler Hickok. He grew up uh, with this idea that slavery is bad and if, if people who think that slavery is good, you know, they, they need to be fought. So that connection to the Civil War is when it broke out, he joined the Union Army, uh, uh, Hickok. And, uh, but he was not going to just be one of those guys in the infantry being used as cannon fodder. He became a first a sharpshooter, and then he became a spy. And he spent a good part of the Civil War behind enemy lines, sometimes dressed as, as a Confederate officer, spying for the Union Army. Well, that's very interesting. I always heard that he was a scout. I didn't know he was a spy. Yes. I know yes, it's a fine and, line, but Yeah, no, well, well the scout for the most part, at least you're staying on your lines. You're 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 you know, you're looking to see if the enemy is any place near. But as a spy, he was, was, you know, literally risking death that he could be discovered at any point as a Union soldier wearing Confederate you know, in fact there's one story in the book where he was discovered who he was and he was wearing a Confederate uniform and he was locked in this cabin and in the morning he was going to be executed. And uh, obviously, he he escaped. Otherwise, it would have, would have been a very short book. <laughs> I don't know if you would have written a book then. <laughs> no, no, it would have been just one of many stories of, of somebody in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. So, okay. Any exploits you want to talk about regarding the Civil War itself? Well, I think that that he had these these close scrapes uh, because there were a couple of times he was discovered. There's a one story in the book about where uh, he, he realizes that some 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 sergeant in the Confederate this regiment is going is, is getting on to what he really is, and uh, he basically challenges the sergeant to a fist fight down by the river. The other side of the river, he knows that there is there the Union army is camped there. And under the ruse of having this fist fight, suddenly Hickok jumps in the, in the water and starts swimming across the river. And the other Confederates realize what's going on, and this big firefight breaks out of, of rifle fire across the river. And bullets are whizzing all around Wild Bill, and he barely manages to, to escape with his life back to the Union lines. So that was just one of his exploits. Another one is when he, uh, uh, th there's a woman named Susanna Moore, who was one of his ro romantic partners. And Hickok met her when she was in a cabin that was being attacked by Confederate soldiers. And he and his other, his other uh, scouts were, found them and rode to the rescue. And, and uh, you know, he, he essentially saved, saved the damsel in distress and, and fell in love. And uh, they, they carried on an affair that went even beyond the Civil War. After the Civil War, how does Wild Bill become a lawman? 
he he didn't intend on it because he was he was kind of a restless wanderer. He would be a, he was continued to be scouting for the army. He, one of the, one of the he, he was a, a trusted scout for, for uh, Colonel George Custer, for example. And he liked gambling, and he liked uh, roaming around, and and uh, he sometimes would be a teamster working for shipping companies. And uh, the lawman thing came about because of a city, Hayes City, uh, Kansas, uh, was one of the rough post-Civil War boom towns that badly, badly needed uh, some law enforcement. And he he said, "Okay, I'll try it." You know, he, I mean, he was he didn't have to start from scratch. He he could he could shoot with both hands accurately. Uh, he was very familiar with weapons. He was a courageous, tough guy. He could use his fists if he if he needed to. But uh, in Hayes City, he did a good job of bringing some law and order to the city. And so when the next job cropped up, which was even a greater challenge, which was Abilene, Kansas, uh, he took the job because it was a challenge. It represented an even better, greater challenge. He said, well, if I could do that for Hayes City, let's see if I could do that. I mean, the previous marshal, the guy whose place he was taking, things were so bad they decapitated him. So, so while Bill says, "Well, that sounds like the town for me," because you know, if they they need the toughest of the tough, and I'm going to show that I am the toughest of the tough. And sure enough, he became the marshal of Aveline and all these adventures and the shootouts and everything like that. And he was so successful that they, you know, they eventually fired him because he cleaned up the town. And the crime rate was so low; they said, "We don't need you anymore." <laughs> now, how much money was he making back then? Well, it's the, pretty standard for a frontier marshal was about 150 a month. Uh, I, that's actually a good salary. Maybe you're making a hundred, hundred twenty-five a month. Hickok made a hundred and fifty a month, and twenty, and I see twenty-five or fifty cents for every dog he shot. Every dog he shot. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now this was—he wasn't a cruel man. What, ha- what would happen though is you'd have dogs that would have rabies, or were getting elderly, or just bothersome, or you know the, the these these random dogs that nobody seemed to know who they are owned them, and they were getting into people's hen houses and stuff. So they would contact the marshal and say, "I got this dog. Need shooting." And so uh, the part of the marshal's responsibility was to shoot and dispose of the dog, and you got fifty cents for per dog. Okay, I learned something <laughs> now. So we, all right, so we got A's Hay City Abilene. What's next? Well, next for he wandered for a bit. He was an army scout again. He was looking for a new adventure. He had no idea his new adventure would be uh, acting on the on the Broadway stage in New York. Uh, his his he's very good friend. Uh, they genuinely were good, very good friends. Buffalo Bill Cody uh, contacted him and said, "Listen, I've got this play." And I'm doing it with a couple other, you know, Texas Jack, a couple other people you know. And basically, it's us sitting around a campfire talking and reenacting a little bit some of our adventures. And while Bill says, That's, you know, that sounds like a silly way to make a living is talking about your own life in, in New York, about what you did in, in Nebraska. And But Buffalo Bill said, we'll pay you $100 a week. And, and while Bill said, I'll try it. So sure enough, this play opens up in New York, and it's a smash. Uh, and it's got stars Wild Bill Hickok, Buffalo Bill, Texas Jack, and a couple other characters, and so they've imported a couple of Indians, and uh, and it, it was a smash in New York, and then they took it on tour, and, and Wild Bill made a lot of money. He was a big New York celebrity, but he came to hate acting. He just thought it was the silliest, undignified way to make a living. And the night finally came. He couldn't stand it anymore. He took his gun out. He shot the spotlights out and left the theater, and that was it. He left acting behind. All right. So that, now, one thing you know, you talked about he, he was a great shot. How did he develop that? Well, he was uh, he came from a farming family, and the, uh, his brothers uh, were not interested in weapons other than basic ones. Maybe you needed to shoot some uh, an antelope or something for dinner. Uh, but he got he worked for did chores for other farmers so he could buy his own rifle at the beginning and eventually a pistol. 
and he just loved tar- target practice. He loved going out to the fam- for the family and shooting game, bringing back turkeys and rabbits and things like that. And it just was something he found that he, uh, the combination of something he loved to do and having the talent to do. So by the time that he was a young man, he was a teenager, he was an expert marksman with a rifle, with a handgun. And uh, he, 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 that was only going to be for hunting purposes. But then when he got embroiled, he went west and got embroiled in the bloody Kansas uh, uh, feud that was going on in the Civil War, for example. That's when he realized that, you know, what a, what a talent, uh, you know, useful talent that was to be able to shoot a gun accurately with both hands. After the acting career is over or after he quits, what happens next? Well, you know, most people who think they know Wild Bill would have you believe that's when he took up with Calamity Jane. Uh, which is not true. He did meet Calamity Jane, and they spent some time together. He couldn't stand Calamity Jane. Uh, he did meet the love of his life. was a woman named Agnes Lake, who was the uh, the only female circus impresario in, in America. She owned her own circus and took it on the road and went all over the United States uh, with, with uh, her circus troupe. And uh, they, he, she and Wild Bill Hickok met and fell in love. And uh, they they got married, and Wild Bill said to stay here. You know, she she originally hailed from Cincinnati. Stay here. I'm going to go out west where all this uh, uh, gold mines are being found and silver mines. I'm going to make us a lot of money, and uh, you you'll come out and meet me, and that's that's where we'll we'll live uh, happily for the rest of our lives. And that plan didn't work out, uh, you know, because one thing that one of one of Wild Bill Hickok's stops was Deadwood. And Deadwood, South Dakota, and uh, we, you know, some most people know that that uh, the cowardly Jack McCall was the man who murdered uh, uh, Wild Bill Hickok in Deadwood, South Dakota. Who was Jack McCall? Well, there's not too much known about him. He seems to be somebody that tried his hand at gambling. He tried his hand at business. It seemed like he failed whatever he did. He was still a young man. He was only like 24 years old, and he was actually in Deadwood uh, to do some gambling. He was in a poker game with Wild Bill Hickok. And he got wiped out. And it wasn't just Hickok that did it. He just was a bad gambler. And uh, But at the end of it, Hickok took a little sympathy on the guy and said, listen, do you even have some money for breakfast? And McCall said, I'm wiped out. So Hickok gave him money. Didn't loan it to him. Just gave it to him and said, here. And, and just, be, you know, maybe you shouldn't return to the poker tables for a while. <laughs> and McCall was actually kind of insulted by that. He felt condescended to. He took the hand out. He didn't need the, uh, the un, unre- unrequested advice. So something started, you know, fuming around in his in his twisted brain, and uh, and so the the day or two later, when when Hickok was playing cards with a couple of friends, and it was one of the few times he didn't have his back to the to the to the wall, his back was kind of exposed. Uh, McCall sort of slunk in there to the to the bar to the saloon, and snuck up behind Wild Bill and put a gun against his head and killed him. Is it true he had aces and eights? On his last yes. hand, yes. The dead man's hand, aces okay. and eights and a queen. Okay. And uh, in fact, one of the promotional things that my publisher, St. Martin's Press, did is uh, when they were handing out bound galleys of the book, they they printed up 250 copies of a five deck, five card deck of cards, and it was the dead man's hand. And each each deck was inserted into a copy of the book. That's interesting. Again, now let me ask you this: You brought it up, Hollywood. Yes. Who's your favorite Wild Bill Hickok, and who's the closest representation to the truth, in your opinion? Gosh, that's a tough one. You know, uh, the only reason I'm going to say Gary Cooper in a movie called The Plainsman from the 1930s. It Cecil was B. DeMille. Yeah. yeah, because there was kind of a physical resemblance. Uh, Hickok was tall. He had you know longer hair than Cooper had, but he was tall and lean, and, and Cooper in his prime was like that. 
the lot of the rest of the film is 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 made up. You know, this takes it takes place ten years before Deadwood, yet somehow Jack McCall's in the movie. <laughs> uh, otherwise, Wild Bill has not been given his due by any means. I mean, you even had Charles Bronson playing him in a movie called The White Buffalo, made oh, in yeah. the nineteen seventies. Uh, there's a movie called Wild Bill with Jeff Bridges where he kind of looks like Wild Bill, but it's, it's again, kind of an inventive story. Um, you know who did a good job was Keith Carradine in the TV series Deadwood, the HBO series. The first half of the first season has Wild Bill played by Keith Carradine. The drawback there is Wild Bill wasn't even 40 by the time he was murdered, and Keith Carradine was playing Wild Bill. And the actor was in his 60s. So that's what's been one of Wild Bill's drawbacks. We keep seeing him played it by old. I think Jimmy Stewart played him once. He, he's played by older actors, and I, one of the things I, my book points out is that he was a young, very active, handsome. You know, there's a there's a passage in the book written by George Custer's wife in which she is swooning after meeting Wild Bill for the first time. So I'd love to see some a screen treatment one day that that shows him as this active, you know, Channing Tatum kind of kind of kind of guy, young, active, uh, uh, handsome, uh, and distinguished, and at the same time a really charismatic and swashbuckling guy that he was. Was he a cold-blooded killer? Was he a nice guy? What was he like personally? He had a code of honor, which basically said, you know, I don't want people to bother me, and I won't bother them, and I, I, I won't let anybody get the drop on me, and at the same time, I'm not going to be aggressive to somebody else. He was an honest man. He always avoided conflict when he could. He, if, he, if he had to settle, if he could settle something with his fists, he did that. Uh, he was, he only, I mean, his code of honor was, only if somebody is attacking me will I fire back. And, and he could let somebody else draw first because he was that fast. You know, he was the, America's first gunfighter. Uh, you know, and, and other people, the, 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 the sort of like the occupation, if you want to call it that, of gunfighter began with Wild Bill, with the very first recorded quick draw gunfight in, in Springfield, Missouri in 1865. And every gunfighter that came after that, they were, they were not called gunfighters, they were called man killers or shootists uh, in those days. Everyone that came after that was sort of like a, a, a spawned by, by Wild Bill Hickok. And, of course, that always made him a target because, as we've seen in some books and movies, I mean, Shane is an example, some gunfighters want to retire because they're worried that they're a target. They don't want to have some younger, faster gun come along and kill them. And, uh, and, and, uh, but, but when Wild Bill was murdered, from be- again, from behind, he, had, he was still the undisputed ch- champ. Nobody in a gunfight had beat him. Why are we interested in Wild Bill Hickok, you know, almost 150 years after he's dead? I think there's two reasons. It does seem to me, I mean, the reception of Dodge City is just one indication that I think there's a new interest in not only some some of our iconic characters from the American West, but the true stories, not the fabrications, the envelopment. But what was what was Wild Bill really like? What was Wyatt Earp really like? What was Bat Masterson really like? You know, some of these characters that over the decades have gone off the rails as far as what they're adventures and personalities were really like let's find out what they were really like so i think there's that and i think wild bill is uh in a society where you know the it's it's like maybe it's getting harder and harder to find these self-confident individuals and and wild bill was was again not an immodest man but he did have a confidence he knew that he presented well he knew he was a handsome guy he knew he was the best i mean his he had this philosophy that the reason why I could prevail in a gunfight is the bullet has not been manufactured that could kill me. Now he really believed that. So he would he would avoid fights, but if he had to have one, he would go into it with a lot of confidence and a lot of a lot of dash uh, and 
and uh, and aiming to end the fight as soon as possible. And uh, I think I think today, 150 years later, uh, people find that kind of individualism. You know, he would spend weeks uh, uh, scouting by himself out of the plains. I think they find that kind of kind of rant notion that that's uh, hard to find in modern day life. Very good. The name of the book: Wild Bill: The True Story of the American Frontier's First Gunfighter. The author: Tom Clavin. Tom, thanks for bringing history to life. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Do you want to hear your parish priest talk more about abortion and the pro-life movement? The key mission of Priests for Life is to help priests do exactly that. The first place to start is to listen to your priest and learn how he thinks. What is he most interested in and passionate about? Then, when you find out, link that issue with the abortion issue. For example, a priest who told me that he did not preach much about abortion also told me he was interested in efforts to stop drug abuse. When I told him that those who have abortions are more likely to abuse drugs, it gave him a new motive to preach about abortion. Find out more about how you can help your priest at priestsforlife.org. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, part of the show is about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. And in that light, we take each email questions each week. Our email address is askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Beth had to run off somewhere right now, so we have Bridget Greco from our office pinch hitting. And, and Bridget, what email question do you have? Mr. Connors, we have a question from Anna from the Bronx, and she asks, my husband just had a stroke and he is confused. Is it too late to get power of attorney? And like a lot of the answers to the questions that are asked, it depends. Just because he's confused doesn't mean he can't sign a power of attorney. But at the same time, if he recognizes his family, he still can speak relatively in sentences. He understands mentally what's going on. He can sign a power of attorney. But this highlights the point. The better thing is to plan ahead of time. It's better to have the power of attorney in place before a stroke. I know this doesn't help and very much in this case. 
But it's better to plan ahead of time. So God forbid somebody has a stroke. You have a PAV attorney, a durable PAV attorney, one PAV attorney that's effective. God forbid somebody suffers from a stroke or another disabling illness. They can point a relative to take care of their their assets, to protect their assets, pay the bills. Now, in this case, if the husband, if he recognizes his wife, he recognizes other family members, he can sign his name. There's no conflict in the family. We can probably have a PAV attorney, you know, signed. But- it's a question. Can he sign his name? Can he physically sign his name? Let's hope so. Mentally is more important. Can he mentally understand the consequences of signing a PAV attorney? Which he doesn't have to be 100, 100%. You know, but he has to understand who his wife is, that he's giving his wife a document where she can sign his name and he understands roughly what's going on. So it's not always easy, but we, we want to try to get a PAV attorney signed if the person's able to do it, because if not, we may have to go to court and get a guardian appointed. And you might say, well, husband and wife, why do we need a PAV attorney? You know, well, if everything's joint, do I still need a PAV attorney? Well, as far as bank accounts are concerned, yes, we can switch bank accounts from husband and wife to wife. And let's say we're trying to save these assets from nursing home bills. Yes, we can save, we can switch bank accounts over, but let's say they own a house together. Anna wants to sell the house. Well, without her signature, she can't sell the house. There's no automatic right in New York to sign a, to sign each other's name if you're married. I don't care if you're married 40 years. Some people think, well, I don't need a PAV attorney because everything's with my spouse. It doesn't quite work that way. Between husband and wife, you still need a PAV attorney. Let's say you have a deed to the house. You can't, let's say the husband has a stroke, he has to go to a nursing home. Wife wants to sell the house downsized because she doesn't have the income to keep the house up anymore. Well, she can't sell the house if she doesn't have a PAV attorney and if her husband's not competent, unless she gets a court order. It's not always easy to get a court order. And sometimes the court system's a little slow. Maybe she gets a buyer. Maybe she loses the buyer because the judge didn't get around to signing the order in time. And of course, there are worse things that could happen. The average cost of a nursing home right now in New York City is about $15,000 a month. So let's say husband has assets in his name alone for whatever reason. He has a business. He has some bank accounts. He had them before he was married. And those assets are still in his name alone and he has the stroke. Wife can't get access to those assets assuming he's not able to sign his own name and he didn't plan in advance, didn't have a power of attorney. So the wife has to go to court. And let's say there's a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank at $15,000 a month going to nursing home bills. That $200,000 is going to be exhausted in about a year. We're not sure within that year whether we can get that court order to switch the assets over. And most of that money is going to be saved. I'm not saying everybody should sign a PAV attorney because if you give a PAV attorney to the wrong person, they can wipe you out. They can steal you blind. But at the same time, if you're married... You trust your spouse. You want to protect your spouse. You want to be protected in case your spouse has a stroke. You want to think about a PAV attorney. And why do we use stroke? Well, God forbid somebody has cancer in today's world. There's usually enough time to get their affairs in order. Somebody's showing the beginning signs of Alzheimer's. Usually, there are enough warning signals to get the proper document signed. It's the stroke that hits like a bolt of lightning and throws the family into disarray. And that's what you need to, to plan in advance for. And, and listen... Planning is not always easy. You know, there's no right answer. Like I just said, you give a PAV attorney to the wrong person, they can wipe you out, they can steal you blind. You got to be careful. But if you have a family member you can trust, if you're married, if you trust your spouse, I would strongly recommend you think about doing a PAV attorney. And if you have a son or daughter you implicitly trust, put them on the PAV attorney. Because you got to ask yourself this question, who do you trust more, your family or the court system? 
And I know some of you out there says, I can't trust my family. Okay, that's one of the reasons we can come in and talk it over and see what other options are out there. And you can give us a call, Connors and Sullivan, at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. We do not charge for the first consultation. The initial consultation is free. There's no one right answer for everybody. Again, some of you may have children you can trust. Some of you may not have children. Some of you may have assets in different states and we want to avoid probate and get everything out tax-free. Some of you may have $50,000 in the bank and you want to save it from nursing home bills. Well, I don't care where you are in that spectrum. You're more than welcome to give us a call. If you want to speak to me, you're more than welcome to speak to me. Just ask for Mike Connors. We have offices in, in Queens, Middle Village, Bayside, Brooklyn, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Highland Boulevard in Brooklyn, and Midtown Manhattan on 53rd Street and 3rd Avenue. Again, we do not charge for the initial consultation. Anything we talk about estate planning and elder law, the first consultation is free. Everything we do as far as estate planning, elder laws, on a flat fee basis. We don't charge by the hour. We charge by the job. So you've got nothing to lose. You want to come in and talk it over. We'll sit down, try to make up a plan for you. I've been doing this for over 35 years now. I'll give you a plan based on my experience, and then you take it from there. Again, if you want to give us a call, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We'll see you next week at the same time. Thank you very much for listening to Ask the Lawyer. We're gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings? Our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.